Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Today we continue with The Metropolitan Man, written by Alexander Wales, read by Ineash Brodsky. I apologize if my voice is a bit off. I just got over a cold and I'm still a bit congested. The original text at fanfiction.net sometimes includes interesting historical notes at the bottom of the chapters. Links are included at the podcast's homepage, hpmorpodcast.com. Conclusion to Chapter 4 of the time, ripping a handful of wires out of a bomb will safely defuse it, either by removing the fuse from the detonator or the detonator from the explosive material. Most people who made bombs were unsophisticated, and most bombs were designed not to be found until after they had detonated. There wasn't much point in making them particularly hard to defuse or move, and there weren't many people with the technical skill to do it. The bombs that Harry designed were complex, above and beyond the complexity designed into them by his benefactor. They had to be, because their target was Superman. Many things could be made fail-safe. The railways used air brakes, in which a piston was held up by compressed air. To apply the brake, some air was let out of the system, causing the piston to lower and the brake to be applied. If any of the components of the system failed, the brake would be engaged by the loss of pressure, stopping the rail car and preventing it from going out of control. Fail-safe design was becoming more and more important as a method of stopping machines from self-destruction. The bombs Harry made were fail-deadly. The detonator was connected to a timer, but the timer didn't cause the bomb to explode. It prevented the explosion from happening. Removal of the timer would collapse a circuit and cause the bomb to explode. Removal of the detonator would cause a circuit to collapse and trigger a secondary hidden detonator. Several small glass tubes were filled with beads of mercury, which were part of the circuit, and if the bomb was tilted too far in any direction, a circuit would complete and cause the bomb to explode. No one would ever be able to see this hard work, not even Superman, because the whole thing was encased in lead shielding. Wires were affixed to the interior of the casing, and if the lead shielding was removed, the bomb would detonate. Most bomb makers didn't make their bombs this complex. It was more work, and with the work came a higher risk of accidental detonation. With the amount of explosives that Harry was using, it wasn't really a concern for him. What he feared was a small explosion that left him limbless and bleeding out. But given the number of pounds of cyclonite he was working with, an accident would leave him vaporized. It didn't seem like such a bad way to go. In truth, Harry liked the heightened sense of reality that came from being one mistake away from utter destruction. The benefactor had designed the bombs to be dangerous things, and Harry had modified them to be nearly reckless. Be careful with that, said Harry, as the workman took the first bomb out of the workshop that had been rented for him. It's fragile. They hadn't smiled at his joke. But then, they didn't know what was in the crate they were carrying out. The circuit with the mercury switches was on a separate timer to ensure that the bomb wouldn't blow up in transit, but there was still more risk than most people would want to take. Harry had no idea where the workman had come from. Like many things, the benefactor took care of it. He also had no idea where the bomb was headed, but he couldn't help smiling as his bomb ventured off into the world. He headed back into his shop to make some variations on the theme. Lex had tried doing things cleanly. 
the Conference on Extraterrestrial Science had put out a plea to Superman, asking him to attend a meeting of minds so that they might make a cultural bridge between human and Kryptonian science. Superman could have come forward and simply spoken to them about what the true limits of his powers were, but he hadn't even responded to them. The invitation carried nearly every important name among the scientific elite, and the lack of response couldn't be seen as anything but an insult. Lex had put forward a mountain of plans and proposals that would allow him to get close to Superman, and almost all of them would allow for an advancement in what most people would consider to be the common good. Superman hadn't responded to any of it. The bombing campaign served multiple goals, as any good plan did. Superman was an extinction-level event waiting to happen, and where those were concerned, there were no second chances. If Superman ever decided to kill everyone, there would be no stopping him. And so it stood to reason that humanity should take every possible precaution to prevent that from happening. The most direct path would be through killing Superman. Lex had written multiple letters to the editor under various pseudonyms, but none had ever been published, and his point of view seemed entirely unpopular. It was always one that he voiced from a position of anonymity, because in public he was playing the role of Superman's champion. People were bad at estimating the risk that an extinction posed, because no one had ever lived through one. People were also quite bad at imagining a catastrophe so large. A woman might weep when you mention the possibility of her child dying from consumption, but the total obliteration of Earth-originating life would produce only a shrug. It was too vast for people to think about rationally. Worse, they assumed that Superman is the greatest threat to humanity was a shorthand for some decision on Superman's part, when in truth that was only a part of it. Many people accepted Superman's story at face value, the last son of a dying planet, the only one of his kind to exhibit such incredible powers with little aid from technology, save for the ship that had provided him with a trip through the stars. There were many parts of the story that Lex was skeptical of, but he found it most terrifying to think that the story was true, namely because of what it suggested about Kryptonian science. Huntington's disease was a hereditary degenerative disease with cognitive and psychiatric symptoms, one of which was psychosis. Huntington's was seen in perhaps 1 in 8,000 people, and psychosis was seen in perhaps 1 in 10 of those. If a randomly selected person of Superman's apparent age were to obtain Superman's powers, there would be a 1 in 80,000 chance that they would both have Huntington's disease and symptoms of psychosis, the result of which would probably be casualties that would dwarf the Great War by a large margin. If Superman was telling the truth about the culture that he came from, his society wasn't much further advanced than humanity, and so likely hadn't grown past degenerative diseases and hereditary defects. Even if Superman were perfectly good in some abstract sense, the onset of a mental disease might be just around the corner. Worse, if Superman's powers weren't the result of engineering and carefully controlled science, a hard pill to swallow, then no one had made sure that they were safe. And perhaps someday something internal to him would simply unravel, unleashing enough energy to destroy an entire hemisphere. 
If Superman was to be believed, his powers had come from seemingly nowhere, and yet everyone simply trusted them as though it were the most natural thing in the world. Estimates were difficult to make, given Superman's silence. His second interview with Lois Lane had provided little illumination. Nevertheless, numbers could be pulled from thin air in order to get a sense of things. There was the possibility that something would happen that was completely outside of Superman's control that would result in Superman destroying the Earth. There was the possibility that Superman could simply have a bad day and decide to kill a large number of people, which many people seemed to think was absurd. There were also failure modes which didn't involve the destruction of humanity, but would nevertheless result in an effective end to humanity as Lex Luthor knew it, the most probable of which seemed to be that Superman would turn into a tyrant. When these probabilities were multiplied together, the final, very rough estimate was that Superman had a 1 in 10 chance of bringing about a global-scale human catastrophe of some kind in the next 30 years. Even if the odds had been one in a hundred, Lex would have taken a similarly extreme course of action. The collateral damage caused by the bombs was negligible in comparison to the threat of Superman. But of course, the bombs were unlikely to kill Superman. The first four had been for calibration, built with a small device which gave a series of loud chirps prior to detonation to allow Superman time to get to it before it exploded. The next series of bombs would introduce more exotic methods of harm, which hadn't yet been conclusively ruled out, but the prospects looked grim. The secondary goal was to probe for a weakness. Lex had it on good authority that Superman had taken the equivalent of a direct hit from Navy artillery to his chest when the third bomb exploded. He'd simply looked surprised that he'd set it off. The magnesium and phosphorus compounds had done nothing to blind him, and he'd been talking with the police soon afterwards with no ill effects. Lex had suspected as much, but perhaps something would be found that could harm him but not kill him, or otherwise give Lex an advantage. Lead had been a boon, and allowed Lex a level of freedom that was gratifying, until he remembered how free he'd been before Superman's arrival. The third objective was testing Superman's limits. Lex kept a detailed log of Superman's movements in his study, as well as a large map of Metropolis which was covered in small color-coded labels that corresponded to Superman sightings or activities. Superman's patterns had been mapped against the general patterns of crime and emergency in Metropolis, and Lex had not been all that surprised to find that the patterns didn't quite match each other even taking into account Superman's preferences for certain crimes and emergencies over others. There were two lulls, one during the daytime that seemed to start around 8 in the morning and end around 5 in the afternoon, and one in the dead of the night from 3 in the morning to 5 in the morning. Lex had no idea what to make of it, but kept the information safely locked away behind lead walls. Perhaps Superman needed to sleep, or needed to recharge in some other way but sustained and consistent bombings would allow for information to be gathered. The fourth objective was to identify the place that Superman retired to when he wasn't flying around the city, since Superman demonstrably didn't spend all of his time on heroics. Lex strongly suspected that the ship hadn't broken up over the Atlantic, and was in fact located somewhere in or near Metropolis. Depending on the size, it would be difficult to hide, but Superman could surely lift the craft up and move it at will, which meant that it could be nearly anywhere. 
All that was under the assumption that Superman was an alien. There was still an outside possibility that there was some other explanation. If the spaceship existed, finding it was of utmost importance. Lex had already hired a team of private investigators to see if they could find some trace of a ruined ship in the Atlantic, though without eyewitness accounts of where the spaceship had burned up, it would be impossible. With them, it would merely be very, very difficult. Still, it was worth trying. The next wave of bombs would be planted in two weeks' time. Perhaps Lex would get lucky, and Superman would prove to have a weakness. End Chapter 4 First Half of Chapter 5 A Stopped Clock Lois Lane had been walking down 15th Avenue looking for a place to eat breakfast when she'd heard the bang from the next block over. She'd started running towards it seconds after she'd heard it, while everyone else on the street was looking around like they'd missed something. If they'd read the paper, they'd know that Superman had predicted that the clockwork bomber would be back. Two weeks had passed, and whatever lead Superman had been following, they hadn't led anywhere, since no arrests had been made. Lois looked down at her wristwatch as she ran. It was almost exactly nine in the morning. Lois hadn't been close enough to the other bombs to get there in time. When she or Clark showed up, the whole thing was already over, and the mad panic and confusion that followed a bombing had given way to shock and grief. This one was different, a chance to be close enough that she would be one of the first on the scene. As she turned the corner and ran past an appliance store, she could see the debris strewn out over the street and the broken windows. People were still picking themselves up, and a few were bleeding, but it didn't look nearly as bad as the other bombs had. She was fishing a pencil and paper out of her purse when the second bomb went off. It was small and subdued, much softer than the first, and there were shouts of surprise, but few of pain. Lois started forward just as Superman arrived on the scene. He moved at speed, darting into the damaged storefront so fast he was little more than a blur, and leaving minutes later. He was carrying what looked like a box and trailing yellow-brown smoke behind him. Lois tried to follow his movements, but after only a few seconds, she'd lost him. He was back half a minute later and landed right in front of Lois. Can you smell anything? He asked. Horseradish. The pieces clicked into place. It's mustard gas. Superman nodded and was back in the fray in moments. Lois sprang into action, calling out to people to get away from the site of the explosion. If she could smell the mustard gas, that meant she was too close. She tried to remember what the medics used on people who'd been exposed to mustard gas. Her father was a general in the army and had fought in the Great War, but it was too far before Lois's time. The most she could do was get people away from the gas so that they wouldn't suffer from exposure. Mustard gas was an insidious poison mostly because it took a while to take effect. And if you didn't know what the odor meant, you wouldn't think to take action until long after it was too late. Lois concentrated on getting people to safety and yelling out instructions. It caused blisters, not just where it touched exposed skin, but in the nose and throat as well. It could damage the eyes so badly that you'd go blind. If you weren't killed by the swelling of the throat, you could still be made mute. She ripped at her blouse and fashioned a crude mask for herself, and helped others to do the same. 
After everyone was clear of the gas, or at least in an area where they could no longer smell it, Superman landed next to her. Call the radio stations. Tell people to stay inside and keep their windows closed. If I'm right, the next one will come in six hours. She nodded, but didn't really need to be told what to do. She could keep a cool head under pressure. Superman was crouched down and ready to launch into the air when a buried thought surfaced. Wait! She called, worried that he would be a mile away by the time the words left her lips. But he stood up and looked at her, puzzlement on his face. She took a deep breath. You said that the bomber was trying to get you. Why not let him have you? We could send a message out over the radio and make a deal. Even if we can't disarm the bombs, it'll let us evacuate people. Superman hesitated. She could swear she saw his eyes blur as they moved around to take in the crowd in a fraction of a second. Lois, I don't know whether or not these things will kill me. I don't even know if the mustard gas is going to have an effect on me. I breathed in more than anyone else before I realized what it was. He wants to kill me. That's the only kind of deal I'd think he'd listen to. But you'd rush in to save people anyway. We're just cutting out the possibility of collateral damage. You'll be fine. Superman stared at her, and she was sure they were both painfully aware that everyone around them was listening in on their conversation. Some were outright staring. No, I don't negotiate. And if the bomber wants me at the sight of these bombs, I'm not going to play into his hands. He hurled himself into the sky and flew away before she could figure out how to respond to that. Had Superman just said that he was handing Metropolis over to the bomber? An Officer Kennedy for you, sir, said Mercy. Thank you, dear. I'll take it now, if you please, replied Lex. He calmed himself and got into character, becoming a man who knew nothing about what was happening across town. Officer Kennedy, he asked with a pleasant voice, what is this regarding? Ah, Mr. Luther, we really appreciated your donation to the policeman's ball this year, and... The chief was saying how you wanted updates on anything real important having to do with Superman, so he just thought I should give you a call to keep you up to date. It wasn't a bribe, per se, just a mutually beneficial friendship. Has something happened? He allowed some genuine-sounding concern to creep into his voice. Well, sir, it seems like the Clockwork Bomber is back, and he's working with some nasty stuff. Boys say that it's mustard gas, like from the trenches of the Great War. I'm familiar, yes. Superman came in to save the day? Well, here's the thing. He came down and pulled people out of the gas and said it was the bomber come back, but then that lady reporter told him that he should try to make some kind of deal with the bomber, because she seemed to think that the bomber was trying to kill him and that maybe Soups could save everyone a whole lot of trouble by letting him try, for all the good it would do, because he's invincible, right? I see. And his response? He said he wouldn't negotiate, and then he just flew off, like he didn't want to hear anything more about any bombs. Like he was done helping out with them. He's abandoning us. I don't know, sir, but it sort of sounded like it. Thank you for the update, officer. Let the captain know that the police of this city continually reaffirm my faith in them. Lex set down the phone without waiting to hear a response. He steepled his fingers for a moment before remembering that he needed to keep up with the role he was playing. 
Someone might notice if Lex responded to news of an attack on Metropolis with only a look of quiet contemplation. Mercy, it appears that the Clockwork Bomber is back and using different tactics. I believe chemical agents were mentioned. Radioactive and biological too, though the person he was pretending to be didn't know that. We should be safe in this building, but I want you to start on calling the managers and tell them to follow the drills and keep tuned to the radio. If it's like last time, the next bomb will be in six hours. Yes, sir, said Mercy, picking up the phone before he was even done speaking. She was invaluable, and likely could have handled the entire crisis on her own without his instruction. She didn't know the full extent of Lex's plans, but she knew enough to implicate him in a vast number of crimes, and that was a mark of the extreme faith he placed in her. Lex turned on the radio in his office. Let's get to some news. It was there more as camouflage than to provide any information. Superman's movements and actions were the most important thing right now, and he was skeptical of the radio's ability to provide that information. Lex's other channels were slower, but more reliable, and there were enough of them that any unreliability in one could be compensated for in the others. Lex had a contingency plan in place. There were two couriers waiting by phones in separate locations within the city. A message could quickly be relayed to them which would send them to the nearest police station. One courier had an encoded message, while the other had the one-time pad needed to decode it. Both pieces were in envelopes lined with lead. Once decoded, the message would give the locations of all the bombs, and the buildings could be evacuated, saving lives and likely preventing property damage. The only question was whether this was the proper time to deploy that plan. Lex had killed for the first time when he'd been fifteen. Willie Calhoun had entered him in a bare-knuckle boxing fight, and Lex had landed a lucky punch that burst an artery in his opponent's neck. He'd been rewarded with a $20 bill and a slap on the back. He'd committed his first actual murder later that year, when a shop owner had gotten wind of the plan for a nighttime robbery and decided that the best course of action was to weigh in late with a revolver and the lights turned off. That shootout was the closest that Lex had ever come to dying. His hands had been trembling when he shot the shopkeeper in the face. He'd been less hardened then. Lex took no special pleasure in murder. It stirred no passion in him to see the life leave a man's eyes. It gave him no glee to hear about the people who died or were injured by the bombs. Just a certain sense of sadness that he imagined other people might feel more keenly. He certainly didn't feel any guilt. Lex sat back and looked at his watch. The next bomb would be going off soon. He tried to make a careful consideration of the possibilities. It was possible that Superman had a weakness to biological, chemical, or radiological attacks, as it was one of the only vectors of attack that hadn't yet been tried. Numerous witnesses had reported seeing Superman breathing, and none had specifically noted that he wasn't drawing breath. Though Superman had never been seen coughing or sneezing, and had surely endured smoke inhalation on an absurd level while engaging in fire rescue, it was still reasonable to assume that he had a biology of sorts, and that this biology could be disrupted in some way. He had not yet been observed eating, drinking, or sleeping, but that might have been something done during what Lex thought of as the quiet periods, when Superman was less active. 
Superman might be afraid of dying to the bombs. If true, this would be incredibly valuable information, and assuming that Superman didn't radically alter his modus operandi in response to these attempts, it would be fairly simple, in the scheme of plans that had to work around Superman's powers, to stage some event to attract his attention and deliver the poison while Superman suspected nothing. The reason that Lex hadn't done it this way in the first place was the enormous amounts of planning, expense, and exposure that would have to go into doing that for each of the 30 candidate attacks that he had planned. Mustard gas, phosgene, chlorine, contact poisons, pesticides, polonium. It saved him an enormous amount of time to simply allow Superman to know that someone was trying to kill him and put him in a position where he would either expose himself or expose an unwillingness to intervene. The second possibility was that Superman was thinking of the future. Superman had routinely refused to make deals with criminals who had taken hostages, presumably because he knew that if he did, more criminals would begin taking hostages in order to put themselves in a position to strike a bargain. Similarly, if the bombs were only being placed because the bomb maker expected Superman to show up, then Superman's best course of action to prevent bombs from being placed was to stop showing up. Of course, that would only lead to a change in tactics, and not one that would likely result in better outcomes from Superman's perspective. Lex had dozens of ideas of how to administer the poisons if Superman refused to touch the bombs. But perhaps Superman was under the delusion that his unseen enemy would stop trying over a little thing like changing strategies. Ultimately, Lex decided against using the contingency plan, at least in the short term. The message from the police officer had been too vague, and even if Superman had directly stated his intent to leave the rest of the bombs untouched, it was possible that the alien was bluffing. Lex didn't particularly like the prospect of martial law being declared, nor the unfortunate economic impacts of a sustained series of bombs in the largest city in America, but the dice were already cast. If Superman had anticipated the bombings and outright stated his refusal, perhaps Lex would never have spent the time and money going down that path. But with everything set up, the majority of the costs had already been sunk. Where the hell have you been? Asked Lois. She'd been seen by a doctor, gone home to shower, changed clothes, and then gone back to work. It turned out that there wasn't all that much you could do about mustard gas, and while the doctor had wanted her to wait it out to see whether she would develop any symptoms, she was pretty confident that she'd had a low enough dose, so she'd slipped out the door when he was seeing someone else. No way was Lois Lane sitting on her ass when there was news being made. From what the doctor had said, people didn't get worse all at once, so if it got bad she'd go in. She'd called Perry to let him know she was alright, and then kept calling Clark because she wanted updates. Clark sat at his desk, typing up an article. He typed with both his index fingers, punching the keys down one at a time. As she watched, he took a glance at the keyboard to see which key was which. Lois could type so fast, she very nearly hit the mechanical limits on her underwood. Speed didn't matter all that much for a reporter, but it was still grating to watch him doing such a poor job of something so basic. Clark, where have you been? Sorry. He pointed to the typewriter in front of him. I got a call in from the Midwest. 
Apparently there was a Superman sighting. He hadn't answered her question, but then again, Clark was hopeless. You're taking point on the return of the bomber? He always said bomber, not clockwork bomber, which Lois felt was a bit petty. He was sore that he hadn't been the one to name him. I am. Superman's full in the coop. He said he's not going to help out with the clockwork bomber. Clark turned to look at her. Why not? Lois shrugged. I don't know. I guess Superman wasn't sure whether it would affect him or not. Makes sense. Lois raised an eyebrow. I mean, let's say that you walked down a dark alley and got shot, only to find out that the bullet didn't do much more than tear up your blouse. You might try shooting yourself again to see whether you really were bulletproof, but maybe you'd be too scared that you'd just end up with a gunshot wound. And you certainly wouldn't go drink some poison, because maybe it would kill you. I understand that. Even if I buy that maybe Superman doesn't know the full extent of how he's protected, he's still supposed to be a hero. It doesn't take a whole lot of courage to walk up to a guy with a gun when you know that his gun can't hurt you. Superman says he wants to be a symbol, then he runs away the first time you might get hurt? That's what I don't get. I guess. Clark frowned. With Superman's powers, isn't it better for him to stay alive and saving people instead of risking death? I mean, how many people does he save in a week? Lois shook her head and pulled a cigarette out. Clark, you're not thinking in the long term. Superman might think that there's some risk of dying, right? And he's got a general stance that he doesn't negotiate with criminals for the obvious reasons. But let's assume that this bomber's got huge amounts of money, no morals, and an honest desire to kill Superman, all of which I think are probably true. If Superman's going to stay away from the chemical end of things out of a sense of self-preservation, and assuming Superman still intends to operate within Metropolis, that means the bomber's just going to resort to tricks. He's going to, I don't know, cause a train derailment and invent pesticides over the area. Superman shows up thinking it's a legitimate threat, and then bam, poison right in his face. Because Superman can't figure out whether or not there's going to be a trap. Clark Kent wasn't as dumb as he looked. It had taken Lois a long time to figure him out, but she was pretty sure that she knew what games he played. Clark Kent wanted to be underestimated because it would make it easier for him to exceed expectations. People clapped with delight when Clever Hans had done math, not because the math was impressive, but because it was impressive for a horse. It was the same way with Clark. You saw this four-eyed Midwestern guy in the middle of Metropolis, looking for all the world like he'd taken a wrong turn leaving the farm. And then, when he actually put out a competent story, you couldn't help but feel like he'd done something amazing. Like he was a horse that could do math. But the thing was, if you were actually good at math, you wouldn't need anyone to think you were a horse. There was more to Clark than met the eye, but once you'd lived and worked with him for long enough and recalibrated your expectations of him, Clark was simply below average in every way that really mattered to Lois. He typed with two fingers, for Christ's sake. Superman's got a problem either way. That problem is that someone with means, motive, and intellect is trying to kill him. If he doesn't deal with the bombs, it's going to be something else. Something that he won't see coming, I'm pretty sure of that. Making a deal isn't ideal, but it would at least help for him to actually be the symbol he talks about being. Clark looked to the ceiling, which was quickly becoming a universal sign that powerful ears might be listening. Are we having this conversation for his benefit? Lois shrugged, which meant yes. She knew that Superman could hear her. It would be better for Metropolis to not have a war between Superman and whoever was behind the bombings, and she had a few ideas of who that might be. She was about to add to her argument when Perry's door slammed open. 
There's been another bombing. But it's too early. Last time there were six hours between bombs. Either the clockwork bomber screwed the pooch or the schedule's been stepped up. Let's go, said Lois as she turned toward Clark, but Clark was already gone. End first half of chapter five. Thank you to the following people. Lois Lane by Anonymous. Superman and Clark Kent by Nathan Bowman. Perry White by Bram Bucker. Officer Kennedy by Alexander Jackson. Kate Baker reading Marcy Graves. Harry Kramer by Lou J. Berger. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the second half of Chapter 5. <laughs>